after the singing of those glorious songs in which we have praised the God of heaven and appreciated so wonderfully his blessings on our behalf, we now have the opportunity to look more carefully at one of the subjects so often referenced and mentioned in the Word of God. And as you can see by the title, as not only it's on the wall to my left, but also in the bulletin, we'll be looking at the Holy Spirit this morning and making some considerations about the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, as you might appreciate from the one that follows the words Holy Spirit, this will be the first in a somewhat brief series of lessons on that rather grand and notable subject. There seemed to be a bit more than what I felt we could reasonably discuss, at least and give it the proper respect and credit in, in a one-time lesson uh, as it might well need to have been presented. The subject of the Holy Spirit. I would suspect that there are many ideas that first come to mind when one makes mention of the Holy Spirit. There is so many thinkings and so many approaches that appear in our world with respect to the subject of the Holy Spirit. There are some individuals who really have not given the Holy Spirit much, if any at all, proper consideration, and hence to them it may appear a great uncertain subject, one on which nothing really can be said with any definiteness. For them, the Holy Spirit might be somewhat like a ghost that one may see in a movie or that one may read about in an article or a fiction journal of some sort. You see, their conception of the Holy Spirit is exceedingly limited and perhaps even mysterious. For others, they may have a very different conception of the Holy Spirit entirely. For them, it may not be nearly as mysterious, but yet there is still notable error and notable untruth associated with that point of view as well. It's not nearly a complete view as presented in the Word of God. There are, however, those whose view on the Holy Spirit is a proper one and is a correct one because it's based upon what the Holy Spirit has said about Himself. We, of course, would very much like to be in that latter category, to have a correct, a proper understanding of and view of the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. I would hope that over the next little bit, the extent of this series of lessons, we can each strive in our study to come to a more full appreciation of that nature of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some questions that almost immediately come to mind. What's the nature of the Holy Spirit? Is it, like some have said, a type of force, an influence, an emotional kind of response? Is that the extent of the Holy Spirit? Furthermore, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? Does he or it have any work involved in the conversion of a person to the faith of the gospel? One could, of course, ask a number of other questions. Perhaps in the churches of Christ, no question has been more prevalent than that of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In what way does the Spirit indwell? As one asks those questions, and perhaps others as well, as noted earlier, there can be many different kinds of responses and many different confusing responses, quite frankly. Our goal shall always be to let the Word of God answer the questions. Regardless of the scholarly nature of a man's work, regardless of the character of the nobility of his intent, the only answers with regard to the Holy Spirit are to be found within the confines of the Word of God. And so over the next few Sundays, might I invite us to open the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit tell us about Himself, the type of work that He does, the nature of the character of that work, and also those latter questions about His indwelling and other things about Him. And so without further ado, 
the character of the Holy Spirit this morning. Might I submit three portions or three segments of the lesson today. The first one having to do interestingly with the nature of this study itself. I believe that alone will be an interesting motivational tool as you and I consider the work of the Holy Spirit. Why might an understanding of and an appreciation of the Holy Spirit be a good thing? Consider these as potential answers to that question. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a Bible subject. Since the Holy Spirit by itself, by himself, is addressed and mentioned directly over 200 times in the sacred word of God and indirectly hundreds of more times, that subject is a subject of the word of God. God has given us his word and intends that we come to appreciate the truth with respect to the subjects contained therein. Be that the subject of the plan of salvation, be that the nature of correct baptism, be that the nature of the Holy Spirit. Thus, one of the reasons that should promote and prompt our study is because it's a Bible subject. With regard to the Bible, didn't Paul tell Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, there is a truth with respect to the nature of the Holy Spirit. And when men veer off into that which is not true, any number of other false ideas can come right along with it. Hence, we need to be firmly and thoroughly grounded in that truthful subject of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, might we notice too that with regard to God the Father and with regard to God the Son, there seems to be a far greater degree of understanding and appreciation for them. But I suspect the same cannot be said for the Holy Spirit for the very reasons that we've previously mentioned. For some, it's just too mysterious. They cannot grasp and understand with comprehension the role and the person of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Bible needs to be consulted to help alleviate that misunderstanding so that even they too can come to a better feeling for and a better appreciation of the Holy Spirit. But notice also in the second place, there is much error in the religious world as it relates to the Holy Spirit. I say that without any fear of contradiction. When one considers the writings, the various things that men have written, who no doubt were very well intentioned, it is nonetheless tragic to see the extreme falseness that's related so often to the nature of the Holy Spirit. Thus, if you and I are to safeguard ourselves so that we will not accept those false ideas and accept those false teachings, we need to also be grounded more fully and more thoroughly in the nature of the Holy Spirit. Those two things said perhaps challenge us to notice a passage I've listed for your consideration. In John 8 verse 32, Jesus himself said, "Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. As we previously noted, there is a truth then with respect to the nature and identity of the Holy Spirit. If that is compromised, it is not a surprising matter that many other biblical truths can also be rather quickly compromised. So we need to be thoroughly acquainted with the Holy Spirit in that regard. Maybe in the third place, just as surely as that false teaching concerning the Holy Spirit could in fact challenge our own faith, 
we in the attitude of love and concern for those who are in the misunderstanding. We need to be thoroughly acquainted with that doctrine so we can help them come to know their error. That they can too come to know the sure certainty and surety of the Holy Spirit as presented in the Word of God. We are commanded on many occasions to use the Holy Scriptures to rebuke, to correct, to instruct, to guide. May you and I attempt to do that then with our knowledge of the Holy Spirit and the truth on that interesting and wonderful subject. And then finally, might I submit to you that since the Holy Spirit is mentioned so often in the Bible, we will not have as thorough and as deep an understanding of many passages if we do not understand the Holy Spirit as we ought. And that leads me to say that in our attempt to understand the Scriptures as deeply and as magnanimously as we might wish, we too should come to understand the Holy Spirit. At the very bottom of that sheet, I've reminded each of us that Paul told Titus to speak thou the things that become sound doctrine, Titus 2 verse 1. If we are thus to speak on any number of Bible subjects in a sound way, that may well involve the Holy Spirit, His work, and His nature. And so it is this morning, having grounded ourselves in the importance of the study, let's turn to what perhaps interestingly arrives first in any discussion that relates to the Holy Spirit. It is that of the Godhead. Almost immediately, when mention is made of the Holy Spirit, direction turns toward the fact of this Godhead. I'd like for us to spend a moment and try to discuss that more fully, to ask what is this word, what does it mean, and how can we appreciate its usefulness in the Holy Scriptures? As you might have already come to appreciate, the word does not occur often in the Bible. In fact, three times in all of Old and New Testament, one does run across the word Godhead. What does it imply in any of its usefulnesses? It, in fact, is a rather old term from the King James as it was translated and put in place. But the meaning is a rather interesting one that you and I can understand easily. In fact, it originally came from the word Godhood, H-O-O-D. And when you and I think about words that end with that kind of suffix, like childhood or manhood, childhood has to do with those things that make a child a child. It is that set of characteristics and properties and identities that that individual possesses that makes him or her a child. Similarly, manhood has to do with those properties and characteristics that make a man a man. It is no different with respect to God. Godhood would have reference to those characteristics that make God, God. When that word thus came to be refashioned or formed into Godhead, that is still basically the same set of ideas. It still connotes the same thing. And thus the Godhead respects or has reference to that set of characteristics that make God, God. Now as one has to see that there are those characteristics, we will all have to ask how many divine entities possess those characteristics? How many divine persons possess the characteristics that correspond to Godhood? to ask that differently, what comprises the Godhead? I've listed on the page also for your consideration some points. 
from early on in the book of Genesis that will point us directly to a powerful precept as it relates to this idea. Very first verse in all the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. When we revisit that fourth word in all of the book of God, in the beginning, God, it is to be very carefully noted that that word is Elohim in Greek, or rather in Hebrew, and there are two things to notice very interestingly about it. It is masculine in gender, and it is plural in number. Now let me revisit that latter one, since that's the most careful one for our study. That word for God is plural, not singular. That would seem in the very first verse of the Bible to indicate that there's more than one divine person possessing the attributes of God. Namely, that the Godhead is more than just one entity. Now, as we look later in that chapter, we notice that 32 times in that opening chapter in all the Bible, that same word Elohim occurs, and every time it's plural in number. We seem to see at the very outset, prior to the creation of the universe and prior to the creation of the human family, the reference to God was plural, meaning that there was more than one entity possessing that nature. But look also at some other statements that also seem rather interesting. Consider the pronouns as they appear later in that chapter. In chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis, that famous statement wherein God said, Let us make man in our image. Us is plural. Who was God talking to? There were no other people there. Apparently, there was more than one divine person present. Notice both us and our in that verse are plural. Later, we notice in chapter 3, verse 22, this was after Adam and Eve had sinned and were in the present time being expelled from the Garden of Eden. On that occasion, God again said that man has partaken of the forbidden fruit and has come to know good and evil as we or as us. There again, the plural pronoun is employed. Later at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we notice wherein God said, Let us go down and confound their language. Us is plural again. In each instance, the reference was to the inhabitants of heaven possessing the attributes of God, the Godhood, if you will. Interestingly, does it not seem that evidence is piling strongly all those references to Elohim numbering well over 1,175 in the sacred text. Plural in all those occurrences. That seems to be posing an interesting conclusion. Now how many gods are there? Please notice I've changed the question. We affirm that there's more than one divine person inhabiting the Godhead. Now listen to Paul, as he would say in Ephesians 4 verse 6, There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Or the famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. How do you and I make sense of what appears to be differing ideas? A plurality in regard to the Godhead, but yet there's one God. As I close that particular sheet, I hope to help you see one of the ideas about it. I've underlined the word one. We are told that God is a jealous God. 
And we're told that with thoroughness he truly is one God. May perhaps we see the answer as we shall show with Scripture in the following way. What's the resolution to this? The resolution as the Bible unfolds it is in the following set of ideas. God represents this name that could well be used to describe any entity possessing the characteristics of God. That is to say, Godhood. And you and I can name a number of those characteristics, like eternality. That being must have no beginning and must have no end. That being must be all-powerful and all-knowing. That being must, of course, have all the characteristics of perfection with respect to love, with respect to compassion, and with respect to justice. But now, as you and I have just affirmed, how many persons have those characteristics? If we can answer that question, we will have determined this matter of the Godhead. The Bible unfolds three divine persons that possess the characteristics of God. First, there is God the Father. Notice some passages in which He is uniquely and explicitly identified as not only Father, but as God. The ones that I've listed. First, in John 20, verse 17. After the resurrection of our Savior, we have not known on that occasion that He Himself, Jesus, made reference to God the Father and equated the word God to the word Father, clearly identifying that on this occasion, as he spoke with Mary and said, Touch me not, for I have not ascended to my Father. And then the Lord explained, For that one Father and God are one and the same. There is thus God the Father. One of the members of the Godhead is then this God the Father, and thus he possesses all the attributes of God. As such, some other passages might even expound upon that idea. In Romans 1 verse 7, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, the inspired writer Paul made reference to God the Father. Now, any other entities or persons comprising that Godhead were not directly referenced by Paul, but God the Father was. We might now notice there is one God the Father. Back to that text in Ephesians 4 verse 6. There is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So at this point, we can perhaps note the number one. There is one God the Father. But, might we notice, there are other references to God, but it's not to God the Father. It's to God the Son. Consider, for example, in Luke 1 verse 32. On that occasion, as the angel spoke with Mary. This was with, with regard to the fact she would soon give birth to the Son of the Highest, to this one who would sit on David's throne, and to this one who would occupy the throne of Israel, the throne of Jacob. This was obviously not God the Father. It was respect to the Son, wasn't it? For that's the wording that was used by the angel on that occasion. But if we needed an even more convincing statement, look at Hebrews 1 verse 8. In that rather famous text, Old Testament Scripture is quoted by the inspired Hebrew writer, and the text says, with respect to God, as it quotes from Psalm 45, he said, interestingly, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. 
what makes that all the more impressive is which God is being referenced. Is it God the Father? It is not. For the verse begins, unto the Son he saith. Notice, unto the Son he saith, O God, thy throne. Thus there is reference to God the Son. Now this divine person is distinct from God the Father. Notice that there is one of these God the Son. And in 1 John 5 verse 20, Jesus is called God. So we now have one God the Father and one God the Son. That oneness of God the Son is identified in Ephesians 4 verse 5. There is one Lord, Paul again affirmed in that famous platform of unity. So at this point, there's one God the Father and there's one God the Son. So here are two that both possess the attributes of God. And so to this point, two members of the Godhead. Let's consider yet another one. For the Bible also makes notice of God the Spirit or God the Holy Spirit. Let's make notice of some scriptures that in fact clearly identify that this reference to God is distinct from God the Father. It's also distinct from God the Son. In the opening chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 1 verse 2, after that statement of, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, we notice that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. But then the text reads, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now there is a reference to the Spirit of God. That was before the creation of man. It was before the other matters of the physical universe had come into its creation. That inhabitant of heaven apparently was the Holy Spirit. But notice some other texts where the Holy Spirit is also called God. In Acts the fifth chapter, in that rather memorable scene when Ananias and Sapphira thought that they could lie about the matters related to the contribution of the apostles, we notice that in verse number 3, Peter, as he directed words toward Ananias, said that you've lied to the Holy Ghost. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. In the next verse, he explained himself and said, you've lied to God. So Peter said the Holy Spirit is God. Here is yet another divine being that is referenced to possess all the attributes of God. Now how many spirits are there? Back to Paul's inspired statement of Ephesians 4, verse number 4 he said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called and one hope of your calling. How many spirits are there, Paul? There's one. So we have God the Father, that's one. God the Son, that's also one, but makes two in the Godhead. And now God the Holy Spirit making three in the Godhead. But there is exactly one of each. Might we also notice, though, that again that text in Deuteronomy 6 said that there is one Lord. These three divine persons are absolutely united in purpose, in motive, in appreciation and desire. That may be a bit of a stretch for humanity sometimes to fully appreciate. Three beings that possess the characteristics of God, but yet they are perfectly united. They have one goal, one desire, one mission, and as they carry that out, each contribute harmoniously and in unison to the accomplishment thereof. Perhaps Jesus made reference to that very idea when in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He made that marvelous prayer recorded in the 17th chapter of John. Remember the unity he affirmed? He said, Father, I pray that they may be one, even as thou art in I and I in thou. John 20, or rather John 17, verses 20 and 21. That unity is something dramatic and powerful and encourages the unity of all believers in Christ till this day. To this point, as we have looked then at the Godhead and learned that there are three attributes, three personalities that encompass that Godhead, might we look a bit further and appreciate the glorious goodness associated with one last aspect of our lesson this morning. That aspect, in fact, is this. As one discusses God, specifically as it relates to the Holy Spirit, Let's now perhaps direct expressly our thoughts to the Holy Spirit. Perhaps God the Father and God the Son would be descriptions for a different lesson at some point. But what does the Bible tell us without any ambiguity at all about the Holy Spirit? There are some passages, and Brother Colonel read it in her reading for today. That's one text, and I would ask that you turn there with me and listen to how Jesus, the Son of God, defines and identifies the Holy Spirit. It will speak volumes about not only the correct approach, but some of the misconceptions of the human family even today. In fact, to make listing of some misconceptions, let me list just a few of the things that you are apt to hear in our modern world of religion. For example, when speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, that is, the organization of the, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they will speak of the Holy Spirit as the active force of God. Now, force is something that you'd study in a physics class or perhaps a chemistry class. It's that which can alter the position by changing the acceleration of an object. Is the Holy Spirit a force? Listen to what the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon society, would say about the Holy Spirit. It is a force, and I quote, very much likened to electricity or magnetism. That is to say, one can see the effect thereof and to see the force that it's able to exert upon something else. Now, electricity and magnetism are inanimate things. A magnet isn't living. Electricity as it, you and I would use it by plugging an appliance into an electrical outlet, that's not alive. But yet that's some of the things that one can hear about with respect to descriptions of the Holy Spirit. Others have likened the Holy Spirit to a divine fluid, something that's able to express strength and force and power. I'd submit to you, and I have tried to write it in capital letters to remind all of us, these are not what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. These ideas are, in fact, I would submit insulting to him. For let us listen to what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit. Not merely a force, not merely an influence, or a power, or a strength, or a fluid, or a, magnet, or a magnetic impulse. Perhaps as we can see in texts like this, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, we have there in the closing verse to the 2 Corinthian letter a reference to all three members of the Godhead. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does not take a back seat to the other two. 
He is also lifted up to the height of appreciation that he is God. In Jude, verses 20 and 21, one more time, all three members of the Godhead are listed in the same passage. On this occasion, the Holy Spirit again takes his rightful place on an equal footing with God the Father and with God the Son. That is somewhat of a sadness and a tragedy when we see then how that often Jesus is appraised and lauded highly and God the Father is magnified and exalted and then the Holy Spirit is called a force, an influence, and in some other kind of magnetic effect. That certainly is not a proper description of the Holy Spirit. These passages in God's Word lift him high to the appreciation of his rightful place as one member of the Godhead. That membership perhaps is explained in John chapter 14 in words like this. I would invite your attention to verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14 and let's let Jesus describe the Holy Spirit to us. And I will pray the Father that he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. That Spirit of truth is in other texts identified as the Holy Spirit. Thus, Jesus on this occasion made reference to the Holy Spirit. And might we notice something interesting? In verse 16, Jesus said that he would pray to the Father that the Holy Spirit would be sent. Does that not distinguish all three of them? If God was going to send the Spirit, then God and the Spirit could not be the same. If the Lord was going to pray that God would send the Spirit, then Jesus and the Spirit could not be the same. Thus, the oneness movement of the Pentecostal church today, it seems, has great problems with a verse like that one. You see, they claim that there's only one member to the Godhead. How does one explain then how that one member could pray to another and a third one would be sent? Perhaps we might notice a second lesson, though, in passing. How did Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit? He used masculine pronouns. Notice he said, He and him. It is not thus an influence, and that's not a rightful way to speak of the Holy Spirit. He is not a force. It is a person, a divine person. Two chapters later, in John chapter 16, in verses 13, 14, and 15, we read this rather amazing text. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you." Uniformly, Jesus did not refer to the Holy Spirit with the pronoun it. He never used it. He used he, him, or himself. That harmonizes well with that opening text in Genesis, doesn't it? Masculine pronouns, plural in number. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as a him, as a he, as a himself. 
We do thus great injustice today when anyone refers to the Holy Spirit as an it, as a force, as an influence like magnetism or electricity. That has to be a blasphemous insult to the nature of the Holy Spirit. He is a divine person. That alone helps to remove a great deal of the sad confusion, doesn't it? And admittedly, the King James translation uses the phrase Holy Ghost. That too is a great deal of a different usage than what we perhaps can appreciate. In 1611, when the King James translation was made, the word ghost, G-H-O-S-T, meant something very different than it means in our modern language. As I mentioned earlier, we think of a ghost as what we see in these movies that are produced by Hollywood, where there are those who see these apparitions. That's not what the word in the King James means. Originally, in 1611, the word ghost meant guest, G-U-E-S-T. Thus, when we think about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, as the King James would render it, that was nothing but a very respectful way of referring to the Holy Guest. It seems far better, doesn't it, to then refer to the Holy Spirit. For so often, that's the way the, the King James even refers to it as it is in this text in John sixteen thirteen. The Holy Spirit, a divine person. As you and I think about it in that way, he's not then some mysterious ghost. He's not some fanciful apparition. He's not some silhouette only. He's a divine person. Very much like unto God the Father and very much like unto God the Son. With that idea alone about the Holy Spirit, that helps us significantly. And we will begin next Lord's Day morning and begin to ask other questions like, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? But perhaps as we close our lesson this morning, one more set of ideas to impress upon our minds the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. I've listed some of the things that the Holy Spirit is said with respect to his behavior. And might I ask you to notice the very things that the Holy Spirit is said to have done are things that a person can do. Notice the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 4.1 speaks. People speak. Things that are ghosts or things that are influences or things that are forces don't speak. But the Holy Spirit does. 1 Timothy 4.1 in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit teaches. Can an influence teach? Can an apparition or a ghost teach? The Holy Spirit teaches. And hence, another affirmation that he's a divine person. In Acts 20, verse 20, we learn other aspects that the Holy Spirit is able to do, which is things a person does. In Acts 16, 6, he forbids... All we who are parents know the act of forbidding a child to do something. Notice the Holy Spirit forbids. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11, the Holy Spirit searches and knows, K-N-O-W-S. That's things a person can do to search something out and to come to know it. In Romans 8 verse 2 and Romans 15 30, we have reference that the Holy Spirit on that occasion loves is love something a person does? Absolutely. Notice in Acts 5 verse 3 and Ephesians 4 verse 30, there are things that are done to the Holy Spirit that are things that can only be done to a person. In Ephesians 4 30, grieving the Holy Spirit. 
Well, grief is something a person feels. In Acts 5, verse 3, the Holy Spirit was lied to. You and I can't lie to electricity or to magnetism or to a force. Furthermore, in Acts 7, verse 50, and Hebrews 10, verse 29, the Holy Spirit can be insulted, which leads me to say that those who call it or call it an influence or a force are insulting the Holy Spirit. In closing our lesson this morning, we can summarize the highlights of the lesson in words like this. The importance of the Holy Spirit, the significance of understanding the relationship that He bears to other members of the Godhead and to that nature of the Godhead itself. We've learned that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, having all the attributes of deity, all the characteristics of divinity, and thus, as we thus learn about the consideration of his works, we'll be prompted to appreciate him even better and even more greatly. But might we even notice, as somewhat a prelude to what will follow, the Holy Spirit does have a role to play in our conversion, for he revealed to us the plan of salvation. This very day, have you responded in faithful obedience to it? Have you become a Christian and enjoyed all the benefits of that relationship with God the Father, with God the Son, and with the Holy Spirit? If you haven't come, become a Christian yet, oh, you're missing so much. Do you not wish today to let the blood of Jesus wash away your sins and come to know the relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? For it's still a truthful thing that when you're baptized, you're baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verse number 20. Today, if we could help you in accomplishing that, what a wonderful day for you in your life it would be. But if you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful, come back to that first love. The Savior would wish you back at His side. And if we could be of assistance in praying to help that come about, you need to repent of your sins and then come back to your first love and we would pray on your behalf. If we could help you in any of those ways today, would you not let it be known in haste while together we stand and while we sing?